Good morning. Um, the reading this morning is from the Tibetan book of Living and Dying by Sogo Rinpoche. The mind and the nature of mind. The still revolutionary insight of Buddhism is that life and death are in the mind and nowhere else. Mind is revealed as the universal basis of experience, the creator of happiness and the creator of suffering, the creator of what we call life and what we call death. There are many aspects to the mind, but two stand out. The first is the ordinary mind, called by the Tibetans, Sem. One master defines it, that which possesses discriminating awareness, that which possesses a sense of duality, which grasps or rejects something external that is mind. Fundamentally, it is that which can associate with an other, with any something that is perceived as different from the perceiver. Sem is the discursive, dualistic, thinking mind which can only function in relation to a projected and falsely perceived external reference point. Then there is the very nature of mind, its innermost essence, which is absolutely and always untouched by change or death. At present, it is hidden within our own mind, our sem, enveloped and obscured by the mental scurry of our thoughts and emotions. Just as clouds can be shifted by a strong gust of wind to reveal the shining sun and wide open sky, so, under certain special circumstances, some inspiration may uncover for us glimpses of this nature of mind. These glimpses have many depths and degrees, but each of them will bring some light of understanding, meaning, and freedom. This is because the nature of mind is the very root itself of understanding. A primordial, pure, pristine awareness that is at once intelligent, cognizant, radiant, and always awake, it could be said to be the knowledge of knowledge itself. Thank you, Karen. Well, I don't know why I bothered to say anything after that. <laughs> That's it, really, isn't it? That's it. Although I think um, I better, otherwise you'll feel cheated. <laughs> yeah, that is an amazing reading. And that Tibetan book of living and dying is in a fantastic book to read, Sogol Rinpoche's book. It really is uh, excellent. So this is the last of a series of Lent talks that I've been giving based around the subject of having our attention on others. Been looking at having our attention on others rather than being just preoccupied with our own lives. The first week we looked at the golden rule, you know, do unto others in relation to having compassion, that idea of, of having compassion for others, doing what you would want to have done to yourself. And in the second week, we looked at the idea of, of, of living in the fifth dimension. You know, the first three dimensions 
first three dimensions being space-related, the fourth dimension being time, and the fifth dimension being that greater self that Sergei Rinpoche was talking about in that last paragraph, that consciousness that we all share. Last week I talked about being the adult in the room. In other words, us taking responsibility for the outcome in all situations, whatever our thoughts and feelings might be about those situations, about, those, about what, how we feel about things. It doesn't matter. Being the adult in the room is taking that responsibility. And I ended by saying that when you're the adult in the room, you're really taking a loving attitude. It's a loving attitude. And I quoted from 1 Corinthians 13, which I think really just so describes what it is like to be the adult in the room. It says, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And when you take that level of responsibility of being the adult in the room, you are doing that. You are being loving. You know, you can see it at the way Parents look after their families. Interestingly enough, it's often mothers who are the adults in the room there. We men often have different agendas that we want to go on, but someone has to take responsibility to make sure there's food on the table, to make sure everything. And, you know, that is an aspect of being the adult in the room. But in all areas, the imperative to be the adult in the room is the imperative to love to be patient, kind, trusting, hopeful, and not self-seeking. And I think that takes discipline to do that, particularly disciplining the mind, because it's often the mind that's the engine of all our actions. The mind is the engine of all our actions. And I think in order to discipline the mind we have to take three distinct phases. It takes three distinct phases. The first phase, in order to discipline the mind, is the phase of education. The second one is the phase of looking at our attitude. And the third one is the phase at looking at our awareness. Three phases that are needed in in order for us to be able to discipline the mind. And, you know, the true nature of the mind, as opposed to just the rational one with which we struggle with life every day, the true nature of the mind is the same as the nature of all being. What Sogol Rinpoche was saying, the true nature of the mind is that which upheld all things in creation. When you drill down into ourselves deeply and ask the question, who am I? From whatever religion that we speak, 
we all hit the same bedrock because we're all human beings. And it's not a function of belief. You know, essentially, who are we? You know, when you come down, you hit the same bedrock. And that bedrock is that ground of being, that, that greater self. You know, we call it God. But we could call it anything because we don't really know. But that is the essence of it. And, you know, you can look at it in the Judeo-Christian tradition. If you look at Genesis, you know, God made humanity God made humanity in her own likeness. God made humanity in her own likeness. Male and female, he created them. We are the likeness, we are made in the likeness of God. You know, in in, uh, Exodus, he says, who are you, Moses, asked God in the burning bush. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. And they ask me, "What what is his name? Who shall I tell them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. That great I amness is that which is within all of us. And every religious tradition has that essence of it, the main ones. It is the innermost essence described in our reading today. It is the foundation of who we are. Everything on top of that is what Thomas Merton calls the full self. It's what we create to explain ourselves to each other. That's what we create to explain who we are to ourselves and each other. It's what Thomas Merton calls the full self. So that great I am, or God, is in fact, that is the very nature of the mind. And so the very nature of the mind is in fact love. Because, you know, as John says in his first letter, God is love. So the very nature of who we are is love. And I'm not, you know, what we're talking about here is the organizing principle of all things. And I'm suggesting that that is love. And in this context, by love, we mean the creative impulse that seeks for ultimate good. It is a creative impulse that seeks for ultimate good. I'm not talking about the romantic love that we talk about in our lives a lot of the time and sing about and holding each other's hands and, you know, being nice to each other. You know, that's all great and that is part part of it, but that's not what I'm talking about. You know, the world's not going to be solved by people holding hands with each other and and embracing each other. You know, that's, that's not going to do it. What we're talking about here is something more deep and fundamental. It is what we're talking about here when we talk about love is the driving force of evolution. I'm suggesting that's what the driving force of evolution is, that peels back the levels of consciousness to reveal the naked goodness that is at the heart of everything. Love is the impetus in everything that peels back the naked goodness that is is the heart of everything. It peels back the levels of consciousness. That is what evolution is, the peeling back of levels of consciousness. And I'm suggesting that the driving force of that is love. And our role in life is to be part of that naked goodness, which is why we're going to do our naked circle dancing. (laughs) (laughs) You've all been waiting for that, the naked circle dancing. I've been threatening it, and now is the time. No. 
Obviously it's not. But our role in life is to be part of that naked goodness, to allow that loving urge to flow through us. That is our role in life, to become a conduit for the whole process of evolution. I mean, if you want to know what the purpose of life is, that is your purpose, to allow that to happen. And that's what it means to be the adult in the room. You know, you are taking responsibility for all of creation. But for most of us, it doesn't happen immediately. You know, we do have to work at it. It's not something that, you know, often spontaneously comes. We have to uncover the layers of the full self that we've created and that we've inherited from previous generations. I mean, all the stuff that our parents and parents' parents gave us about what's right and what we should be doing and what, you know, and we inherit all of that, which is why we don't do naked circle dancing. They say it's wrong. (laughs) Thank you, Ward. (laughs) Our next uh, away day will be with Leaf. And that'll enable us to make yourself. But there are, in it's all we've inherited these false ideas, ideas about ourselves that have been handed down to us and that we've accepted almost unquestioningly. And so we, you know, I'm going to come back to those three areas I spoke about that we have to bring to play before we can begin to love in a meaningful way. And that is education, attitude, and awareness. And I'm saying those are the three things we need to be aware of in order to be able to get ourselves into that space. Now, first of all, education. We have to educate ourselves as to the true nature of reality. And I always like this, you know, education comes from those two Latin words, e, which means out, and ducare, to lead, to lead out. So education is the leading out. In other words, it's all there within us. The knowledge of this is all there within us, but we have to bring it out. And it's interesting, you know, handing down these thoughts. You know, in the past, we've been told, you know, that God is a chariot that passes over the sky. We've been told that God is an angry old man that is vengeful. And we've been told that God is a nice young man in the sky who will come down at a certain point and show us what's what. And now we see God has a greater consciousness. You know, our ideas about God are continually changing as history goes on. And our education has to really catch up with that. We have to get to the point where our ideas that we have about ourselves and our reality are grounded in truth rather than based on superstitions of the past. And the truth is that those ideas are always changing, particularly the ideas about what is the nature of reality. You know, we may poo-poo the idea of a young man in the sky riding down to us on a cloud in the second coming, but our idea of God being ultimate consciousness may be equally derided in a thousand years' time as being total, you know, cobwash. You know... It's just what we think is great based upon our science and based upon our understanding. And we all think that's it. And I stand up here every week and say it's all about the transformation of consciousness. But it might not be. You know, that's just what, what we think right now, those of us in this oogie-boogie spiritual bit. That's what, you know, that's what we've thought is the modern way of looking at it. But the truthful, really, this is the truthful place that we have to come to in our education is that we really don't know. 
We don't know who God is or what God is, and we probably never will. We have to arrive at a point where we are willing not to know. That is a truthful place. We have to get to that point. We can have ideas about it that help us, but we have to really get to that point in our education where we admit that we don't know. And we can't know, you know. They always say that knowing God is like, you know, an ant looking up at a sole of a shoe about to come down on it and say, whoa, that's, you know, look at that God. But they don't know what's above it, you know. They have no idea. You know, the other idea is to say that, you know, our ideas about God are, you know, are like a fish trying to understand what a cash register is. You know, there are so many, you know, there's so many differences. Not knowing is the place, I think, that we have to get to in our education. And we're talking about disciplining them. Where do, how do we discipline the mind? I'm saying we've got to get to that place in our education where we're willing not to know. It's the only place that gives us the true freedom to love. But to get to that place, it takes inquiry, it takes thought, and it takes learning. In short, it does take education. You know, Getting to that point of not knowing, arriving at, at, at that, that understanding, it means that we can stop being right. Because the, you know, when you're right, you've, you've immediately got something that you're coming from that's not necessarily true. You might be right, you might not be, but there's something there, there's an attitude there. And that's the second thing we have to look at. Education, we have to... We have, to, we have to inquire about the nature of things in order to be able to discipline our mind to get us to a point, I think, of not knowing. But then we have to look at the attitude that we got because it's not enough just to, 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 uh, you know, to be educated on its own. We can arrive at a point of not knowing but still not be able to love because of the attitude we have. You know, that attitude might be that we don't know who God is or what God is. Therefore, we might as well do what we like with impunity. I mean, that's an okay attitude. That's an attitude. But that doesn't help you discipline the mind. That doesn't help you in this situation. The attitude we have about love is vital as it dictates how we might respond to circumstances as they arrive. Yeah, the word attitude comes from the late 17th century. And actually what it meant was the place where you put the actor in the play. It's the idea in art of striking an attitude. You've heard that. When you strike a pose, it's, it's like that thing. It's striking an attitude. And it's come to mean out of that a settled behavior reflecting feeling or opinion. It's come to be a settled behavior. But it takes into account the background. That's why the attitude is important. Because when you put something in a piece of art, you take into account what is behind it. And, you, and that is the education. The education creates the attitude. You, you have to have the two together. So attitude really is a settled behavior reflecting on a feeling or opinion. So to be able to love or to realize the true nature of the mind, we have to develop an attitude to reflect this. We have to develop an attitude. And Paul's got a lot to say about this. That's the Paul that's in the Bible. Um, Paul's got a lot to say about this. He says in, uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians, he said, to Philippians, he says, May your attitude be that of Christ, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, 
And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And there is a description of the attitude that one, that, that, you know, that is the attitude to take up if one's looking at discipline in the mind. And it, it is an attitude of service, of doing unto others, rather than having our own agendas that we're running. It is about service. It is back to that loving attitude of being the adult in a room. And it's only when we've done this that we can really be open to the possibility of realizing the true and loving nature of, of the mind, to actually find that. So we have education, which is really the backdrop. We have attitude, which is how we approach things. And the third aspect, I'd like to suggest, is awareness. Is awareness. And we're talking about how we realize that nature of the mind that Karen was speaking about. But we cannot really approach awareness until we've resolved the aspects of education and attitude. Only then can we attempt awareness because we've prepared ourselves with a, con- a context that will facilitate realisation. We've prepared ourselves with a context that will enable realisation. Once we're prepared, we can begin to approach our rational minds, what the Tibetans called in that reading, Sem. And in looking here, we can see, when you look at our rational minds, how chaotic we actually are. How our rational mind flits from one subject to the next, how uncontrolled it is, how completely undisciplined our rational mind is. But that is impossible to do, to see that without the work on education and attitude, because without this, the mind just thinks it's right and therefore will never allow itself to be disciplined. Because unless you've got the right attitude and the, right, the education, the mind just thinks it's right. We, we think we're right most of the time. It has to realize the mind that it doesn't know and, and that its purpose is to serve. Then it will accept discipline. Once it realizes that, it will accept discipline. You know, we don't like that discipline. The mind doesn't like that discipline if it hasn't done the work because most of us completely identify with our minds. We think that we are our minds. A lot of people think they're their minds. They think that their thoughts are who they are. And they refuse to have any limitations on their ability to think. You know, it's just a 48th Amendment, you know, that you shall not, you know, criticize the mind in any way. Because we just associate with the mind so strongly. But of course, you know, that education will tell you that you are not your mind. Key piece of information, of course. You are not your mind. You may not know exactly who you are, but you can be certain that the creative, loving impulse that is at the heart of all evolution and is striving for the highest good in everything is not your mind. I mean, you can, you can test it, you know. The creative lumbering impulse that is at the heart of all evolution and is striving for the highest good of everything is not your mind. And if you want proof, just look at your mind and how it works. You know, what it's drawn to, what it thinks. And it's probably not always going to be the highest good in everything. So the, real, the way to realize that loving nature in its fullest form, 
is to be able to discipline the mind. You have to be able to discipline the mind, to be able to notice what and when the mind is thinking. Because most of the time we are unconscious of our thinking. We just think do, which is not a Chinese word, think do. It's just we just think and then do. We think do, think do, think do, almost without a gap. So we have to be able to watch what our mind thinks and not necessarily be spread, be be swayed by that. Because the purpose of the mind, what is the purpose of the mind? Survival. That is the purpose of the rational mind. It's working out all the time how to survive. Working out all the time how to... And it's always over-surviving. And it won't let any room for anything else except surviving. So the, the nature of the mind has to be disciplined. Because our minds are generally all over the place, you know. They're thinking about anything else. Shopping lists, plans, sex, money, sex, health, sex. You know, all at the same time. It's just going on and on, just continually. And even when we sit and rest, you know, our mind is still juggling from one thing to another. Even when we do our meditation. It's true for me, it's definitely true for you. Your mind is still doing all that sort of stuff. So in meditation, we have to make a decision to focus on one thing, say our breath. And we have to keep that focus there. And the reason for keeping that focus there is not some sort of oogie-boogie thing that will enable you to relax. It's disciplining the mind. Because the mind doesn't want to stay there. It wants to think about homeland. It wants to think about the shopping list. It wants to think about sex. It wants to think about anything else. But because it's just so boring. It might say, why do you want to do that? It's just boring. The mind does not want to be disciplined. We keep that focus. Except, you know, we don't. Because our mind takes over and the next important thing we have to think about, we tend to think about, even in meditation. So the discipline is to say no to the mind. The discipline is to say no We're not going to think about those things. We're going to focus on our breath. Not because the breath is necessarily anything special, but because it's the way that we discipline the mind not to go off in all directions. And in fact, breath is something special, uh, you know, with spiritual connotations in most religions, but, but that's a different message. You know, we just look at why we use that. The point of meditation is just to bring ourselves back to the breath. Just like the school child that keeps rushing off from his desk, the first thing you have to train a school child child is not to keep rushing off from his desk, but to sit at the desk so that it can learn. We train the child to sit at the desk. So we keep the mind on the breath so it can be trained not to rush off. Because it's only when the mind is in control that the impulse to love, it's only when the mind, when you can control your mind, that the impulse to love can come through because the impulse is at our very essence. The essence of who we are is love. And so when we're not loving, we're not being truly who we are. I like the kids making noise. So you, you, please, it's the impulse coming out, so don't worry about it. But that's who we are. The essence of who we are is that love. Because the nature of the mind, the nature of who we are is love. And the thing that gets in the way of that is the rational mind that tries to work everything out and survive. Because of our conditioning, because of our full self that we have created ourselves, we're not able to realize that love. Instead, 
we realize what we think is going to help us to survive. Which is why we put ourselves, we have to put ourselves through the process of education. We have to work on our attitude. We have to be aware of what we're thinking in order to be able to bring ourselves to the point where we can let go the need to survive and we can become conduits for love. We have to obey the golden rule to do unto others. We have to realize that we are part of something greater than our small self and that great self is upholding us all the time and we have to be willing to take responsibility to become the adult in the room and we do that by becoming love. Last page, for those of you worrying. The manifestation of ourselves as love is a work. A work of practice, a work of letting go of our ideas, a work of cultivating an appropriate attitude. And we should not be afraid of the work of love, of being aware of letting ourselves be moved by our innermost nature, because that work is the very work of creation and evolution. It's why we're here, and it's what we're meant to be doing, that work. So it doesn't matter who you are and what your own personal story is. You have your work prepared for you in your story in the challenges that you face in your lives, in the difficulties that you come across, no matter how unfair they seem to you. Because that is the grist for your mill. Your problems and your issues are the grist for your mill. That is what you have to work with, and that is what you have to offer. The way you educate yourself, the way you develop your attitude, the way that you become aware of your thinking is all what you personally have to contribute to the evolution of consciousness. That's what you've got to contribute. The choice you have is whether or not you choose to do it. That is, that is free will. Do I choose that or not? But if you do, know that you're not just doing it for yourself, but you are joining in a great work that's the center of all life. Again, Paul says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves were the first fruit of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. That is what it means to be a conduit for love. He goes on, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Sacrifices. That's what we are. Sacrificio, the Latin word, to be made ficio, sacri, holy. To be made holy. To realize the true nature of our minds. To work on that is to be made holy. And that is why we must discipline our rational minds. That's it. So let's pray. Just notice our thoughts. And we pray that we may be offer ourselves as our true reality of living love to the world. 
We pray that we may prepare ourselves for the relationships that we have with our family, to represent that love to them, to our friends, to our colleagues, that we may represent ourselves to the world in that way, that we may have that loving attitude to our lives and forgive ourselves if we don't feel it's going the way that we want it to go. We have to be able to present ourselves in that loving way to all that's around us. We pray for that attitude in our leaders. Pray for the attitude to pervade throughout the world that that true loving nature may come through and just relieve those situations that we see at the moment, people in, in prison, in war zones, suffering, injustice, punishment, ill, in hospital. I pray that that love may be unfolding and coming through into life. And pray for those who are, are suffering at the moment in our own community, for Tricia Nichols, Patricia Hill, Will Welch, Barbara Orcutt, Tegan Sullivan, Mary-Kate Brewster. Pray for Soleil, for Lee Bougay, for Betty Van Der Veer, for Gary Daniel, for Sandy St. John, for Father Joseph Boyle and Father Thomas Keating, for Bill Archer, for Ken Hemmersley, for Nathan Morse, Sophia Lank Layton, for Julie Paxton, and for MJ Elisha. Lord, we commend those people to you and your love to their healing. In Jesus' name, amen.